Dude, I got sucked into video, audio, gear, YouTube rabbit hole yesterday for like four hours. <laughs> it's the best, right? You just get to go on YouTube and, and see people's crazy setups. Yeah. I think dude, I think YouTube is like might be the most interesting place on the internet right now. I buy that. I, I, I honestly I, I think it's like you look at the people who are really entertaining too, and you can just like they have these eight 10 minute videos and like you don't stop watching them they're so well made and then like you compare it to like an episode of conan o'brien who's like one of my favorite comedians and entertainers and like you know he has like dead time and stuff that he fills up i mean he's great but like these people are so good and they've just been doing it like they've been just it's just a laser focus and the medium is a very specific medium and it's like it's really cool you know yeah also also you can find anything like you can literally find anything you're interested in so yeah i think that's the most that's one of the most amazing pieces about it yeah i've realized it's a search engine and like i've heard that before but I, since i've been cooking more at home like if i want to look up a recipe or something i've just realized it's like i started using youtube for everything now instead of google because when you type a, something into google um like google rates the re- the search reviews but you don't you don't know anything about the websites at all but if i type a recipe into youtube for chocolate chip cookies and i see a video with like a million views i just there's so much social proof there i know you know yeah interesting whereas like google people game things like you you hit these ridiculous websites that have a h2 every three paragraphs that's like first step one in baking your chocolate chip cookies step you know into a whatever can get a good oven (laughs) right right exactly i was like how to make you know zucchini squash with blood and they keep repeating it because they know that's what people are searching for but um but you don't it doesn't add any value whereas like i feel like the views on youtube are usually a very good indicator that the content is like focused and valuable like um it's pretty interesting man it's pretty interesting you know my first thought there is it seems like a problem with um google search engine like it's not it's not that text is bad it's that people are able to game the system Right. And there's no ratings or social proof. Basically, like YouTube's able to crowdsource um, the, the rankings um, yeah. and, and Google kind of isn't. You know, a lot of times when I like, especially when I have to search for like home improvement stuff, I will I'll put like Reddit at the end of my search. Yeah. And um, it's to avoid that website with all the H2s. But I, I also think it's something you're saying. It's, it's a social proof. If I find something on Reddit that has hundreds of um upvotes i know i can trust it right we're like huh very very interesting yeah so yeah i love youtube man and i I, and it's just like yeah the the audio video stuff you know there's people who are just so good at like explaining things and breaking them down and you kind of come across their videos and then they recommend someone else and then you come on someone who has like five hundred thousand subscribers and all they do is like shooting video with dslr um and it's just like amazing like you wouldn't find that you know, it's just really good um, as opposed to what you would find browsing random people's websites. So it's just cool. It's like reinforcing this whole thing that we've been learning about, like how important distribution is and meeting people where they're at. And yep. um, yeah, it's just interesting. Hey, give me, give me, finish that thought. I'm going to, I have to shut this door. Okay. So, all right. I'm trying to think if I have anything interesting to say. I couldn't think of anything interesting to say while you were gone. Ugh. Last time I did. I guess I didn't watch a movie this weekend. <laughs> I've just been binging Wire. I'm on the last episode of season two. Oh, wow. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, I've been watching a lot. It's really good, man. I'm really into it. Do you like Do you like season two? 
Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Okay. People, people generally, people hate season two. People Shot say in a lie. beer, Dolores. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I liked season two, um, but I do remember when I was watching it that it's like, oh, wow, this is kind of slow. Yeah, it was slow at the beginning, but then they, they tied it into Barksdale and everybody. And, yep. you know, they got the team back together, which was fun when yeah. everyone gets back together. And uh, I do like the blue collar people down by the docks and uh, <laughs> Ziggy and everybody, uh, Nikki and, and the Greeks and stuff. So it's really cool. I'm on like the last episode. Um, yeah, it's really it's really good. I just like it. Um, nice. Dude, it's like very see- realistic, you know season three and four it, it, it's just everything you like about this is just about to get so much better i heard because someone i played poker with just watched it and he was saying the same thing he was like the end of season four i, I was just like oh, couldn't stop watching it yeah it's so, so i'm excited good. it's really really great um i also won my first call of duty uh warzone match <laughs> it was awesome is it is it like a you versus everyone else it's it's not just me it's teams but there's like 150 people in it and and my team was the last to to survive it was awesome i was playing with ian and we got on we put our headsets on and we met with a third guy and uh i knew he was from philly i was like dude are you from philadelphia man and he was like yeah he's like well how can you tell i was like man my ex-girlfriend was from there and the accent just sticks out like a sore thumb (laughs) to me he's like laughing he's like i never think i have an accent but people always tell me that sometimes there's just a few words but um, this guy kind of knew what he was doing, and he had won before. And uh, he was just like, yeah, you got to hold back and play the perimeter and stuff. So it was awesome, man. It, it was like one of the most satisfying gaming experiences I've ever had. It was like really, really cool. Nice. Did, did, did you play more games as that group? We like didn't. No, okay. no. That was like the last game of the night. But uh, yeah, it was awesome. Nice. Um, it was Very really nice. fun. Yeah. Uh, did you see that video about the Unreal Engine 5? Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, yeah. There's so many web developer jokes in there. I know. Um, I'm, bite, I'm biting my tongue. But um. Well, did you see the fake Onion News site that was like Unreal Engine 5 created just to spite web developers? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. Along this topic, actually, one of the interesting things that was going around Twitter was um, uh, the last few weeks was that post about, you know, basically SPA development. And um, have you seen that one that Dan Airmob was commenting on? Yeah, I um, I didn't read it, but um, no reason why I did. Yeah, why I skipped it. Yeah. yeah, you should read it. It's good. Uh, I'll link it in the show notes because that was good. The commentary on Twitter was good, and then um, Rich Harris ended up writing a, a response um, that was also good. I admire Rich. I really like his thinking. And I also admire that he's willing to put his opinions out there. Um, because yeah, he always catches flack for him, but it's good to know where people actually stand on this stuff. You know, what is the, um, the, what was the post about and what was Rich's response? Yeah. So the substance of the post is, is basically, um, that, you know, SPAs, uh, the modern way of doing web development, maybe not even SPA is the way we think about it, but um, just JavaScript first development basically is like doing a lot of wheel and reinventing. And um, I almost want to just bring it up and like read through it on the podcast. Um, Cause there's like so much interesting stuff here, but um, basically like uh, it's slower. Like you can't be at a static site. 
you can't be like just delivering HTML. Um, and um, here, let me just pull it up because I'm like my mind is in two places right now. I'm just going to pull it up. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the author is Tom McWright, and um, I don't know where he works, but um, he the blog post is called Second Guessing the Modern Web. And basically, the emerging norm for web development is to build a React single-page app. The main UI is built and updated in JavaScript to React backend as an API. And so, yeah, basically, he's saying it's like a lot of messy optimizations, um, bundle splitting, server-side rendering, APIs, data fetching. And uh, he basically says, let me just kind of skin this. I almost just don't read this. Yeah, let's go through each section. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Part of it. Yeah, I think we should, because because basically, like, it's really interesting and it's related to a lot of stuff we we do. So, second guessing the modern web, the emerging norm for web development is to build a React single page application with server rendering. The two key elements of this architecture are something like one, the main UI is built and updated in JavaScript using React or something similar. Two, the back end is an API that the application makes requests against. This idea has really swept the internet. It started with a few major popular websites and has crept into corners like marketing sites and blogs. I'm increasingly skeptical of it. There's a sweet spot of React in moderately interactive interfaces. Complex forms that require immediate feedback, UIs that need to move around and react instantly. That's where it excels. I helped build the editors in Mapbox Studio and Observable, and for the most part, React was a great choice. Observable is Mike Bostock's um, company that he started that's like D3 browser thing in in the browser i don't know if you've seen that but yeah yeah the um doesn't like jeremy environment jeremy yeah. yeah okay yes jeremy ashkenaz works there too yep but there's a lot on either side of that sweet spot the high performance parts aren't react uh mapbox gl for example is vanilla javascript and probably should be forever the level of abstraction that react works on is too high and the cost of using react in payload, parse time, and so on, is too much for any company to include it as part of an SDK. Same with yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Same okay. with the observable runtime, the juicy center of that product. It's very performance intensive and would barely benefit from a port. Well, first of all, on this part, I mean, performance is always brought up so many times. But how many times in my career? has performance been an issue versus complexity? And my personal experience is that it basically, it's like less than 10%, less than 5%, right? Yeah. Yep. And that might just be a, a, a factor of where I've worked and the kinds of projects I've worked on. But um, it's like writing buggy forms and dealing with stale data and um, like having an easy way to share styles across an app. So... That's kind of where I come from with a lot of these discussions. I can't really relate to the performance stuff as well because to me that's like not what the middle class developer who's working on a back office app or whatever is really dealing with all the time, you know? Yes. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I have no comment there because same boat. Cool. The less interactive parts don't benefit much from React. Listing pages, static pages, blogs, these things are increasingly built in React, but the benefits they accrue are extremely narrow. A lot of the optimizations we're deploying to speed up these things, like things like bundle splitting, server-side rendering, and pre-rendering, are triangulating what we had before the rise of React. And they're kind of messy optimizations. Here are some examples. 
Bundle splitting. As your React app grows, the app bundle grows. Unlike with traditional multi-page app, the growth affects every visitor. You download the whole app the first time you visit it. At some point, this becomes a real problem. Someone who lands on the about page is also downloading 20 other pages in the same app bundle. Bundle splitting solves this problem by creating many JavaScript bundles that can lazily load into each other. So you load the about page and what your browser downloads is an index bundle. And then that index bundle loads the about page bundle. This sort of pro, this sort of solves a problem, but it's not great. Most bundle splitting techno- techniques require you to load that index bundle. And then only once that JavaScript is loaded and executed, does your browser know which page bundle it needs. So you need two round trips to start rendering. And then there's a question of updating code split bundles. User sessions are surprisingly long. Someone might have your website open in the tab for weeks at a time. I've seen it happen. So if they open the about page, keep the tab open for a week and then request the home page, then the home page that they request is dictated by the index bundle that they downloaded last week. This is a deeply weird and under-discussed situation. There are essentially two solutions to it. One, you keep all generated JavaScript around forever and people will see the version of the site that was live at the time of their first page request. Two, you create a system that alerts users when you deploy a new version of the site and prompt them to reload. So we've run into these things before. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I really like that. Um, it's just it's funny that we're describing uh, ways to split bundles and how to download because, you know, that's what the browser is good at, downloading yes. a specific page. So there's definitely some uh, real wheel reinventing there. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, we've had that. We don't we work on like a bunch of back office tools and we've totally had that happen where someone says like, Hey, this, you fix this bug like a week ago and I just ran into it. And it turns out it's cause they had an old, they had like the site open for two weeks and they were yeah. using the old version of the app. Um, and we've also like, we've hand rolled a system where the front end pings the back end saying, uh, I'm running version 32 and the back end will respond and say, well, the latest version is version 36. And we pop up a modal that says, hey, you need to um, you need to reload, which is really tricky because you don't ever want to show that while the user is doing real work. Right. So. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a real issue. Um, he says, so let's finish the section. And yeah. then um, there was something I wanted to say. The first solution has a drawback that might not be immediately obvious. In those intervening weeks between loading the site and clicking the link, you might have deployed a new API version. So the user will be using an older version of your JavaScript front end with a new version of your API backend, and they'll trigger errors that none of your testing knows about because you'll usually be testing current versions of each. And the second solution, while it works and is what we implemented for Mapbox Studio, is a bizarre way for a web application to behave. Prompting users to update is something from the bad old days of desktop software, not from the shiny new days of the web. Sure, traditional non-SBA websites are not immune to this pitfall. Someone might load your website, have a form open for many weeks, and then submit it after their session expired or the API changed. But that's a much more limited exposure to failure than in the SBA case. So the only thing I want to say in this section is like, it's just it's very true and this is this class of problem is like again what we call like the middle class problems because they're they're real problems that aren't interesting in the sense that they're not like solving a tree diffing algorithm and so they're not as sexy but they're the kinds of things that really slow people down and this is what i would put in the category of like complexity that i've had to deal with that is not related to performance stuff and so these kinds of discussions really get my attention much more than saying like um, every site should work without JavaScript or, um, like 
you have to wait until the initial parse happens for the user to see something like those things are just so abstract to me. And um, this is more like the kinds of problems I face. And it just feels like I've never used Laravel before, but when we look at the docs and they have like a documentation page specifically for like 404s and you look at like a lot of the frameworks in the JavaScript space and they don't have those kinds of, again, middle-class solutions, this is the kind of thing I would want to see um, help dealt with first party by a, a proper framework that like if there was a Rails or a Laravel equivalent, I would expect it to be dealt with. So, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, we always talk about like, we like using libraries that are, are abstracted from extracted from like real world applications. Yes. And it seems like that because this comes up in a real world application, um, that's the sort of way I would want someone to solve. I wouldn't want a framework to just present this as here's how you solve this problem. I would want it to come from like, here's how we solve this problem. Uh, yes. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Yep. Definitely. Um, yeah, like he said, um, Mapbox Studio did the alert thing. So if if they were the DHH of the JavaScript and they were building Mapbox Studio on top of some JavaScript framework, Acme.js, and it was open source, they would pull that out into Acme so everyone using it could just have that notification system built in. Yep. And it would take care of the thing. We know we've done all this since five years ago in Ember. You fingerprint assets. You know there's a version in the header, something like that. Um, you can leave all your built assets as immutable assets everywhere so that people running the old version can still function. If you can make forwards com- uh, backwards compatible changes to your API, then you can have multiple versions of the app running. And for the most part, like when's the last time we made a backwards incompatible change to an API, even when we were starting Ember map, like it doesn't happen that often. So I feel like that's a good 80% solution. And so for me, the problem here is like, um, and again, this is kind of be my theme, I guess, with when I my takeaways from reading this is like the problems are, are not intractable or, or their problems are not tied to, um, the architecture there, there, the problems are as a result of like a lack of, um, Mm, mm. it's, it's, it's the whole incidental versus accidental, uh, essential versus incidental complexity thing. Um, server-side rendering. Okay, so the theory here is that SPAs are initially a blank page, which is then filled out by React and JavaScript. That's bad for performance. HTML pages don't need to be blank initially. So server-side rendering runs your JavaScript front-end code in the back-end, creating a filled-out HTML page. The user loads the page, which now has pre-rendered content, and then the JavaScript loads and makes the page interactive. A great optimization, but again, caveats. The first is that the page you initially render is dead. You've created a time, the time to interactive metric. It's your startup's homepage and it has a sign up button, but until the JavaScript loads, that button doesn't do anything. So you need to compensate. Either you omit some interactive elements on load, or you try really hard to make sure that the JavaScript loads faster than users will click, or you make some elements not require JavaScript to work, like making them normal links or forms, or some combination of those. And then there's the authentication story. If you do SSR on any pages that are custom to the user, then you need to forward any cookies or auth relevant information to your API backend and make sure that you never cache the server rendered result. Your formerly lightweight application server is now doing quite a bit of labor running React and making API requests in order to do this pre-rendering. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, it's really hard. I mean, it's real. you need to add this stuff and the stuff that was so simple before like adding a meta tag now becomes incredibly complicated and so yeah this is uh 
that 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 hits, hits home, home. <laughs> yeah um maybe we can solve this with like a general general solution but today there's none and we end up um yeah you end up having to do all that bookkeeping like example passing http headers from the app running from the user requesting the app to the app running on the server to the back end like there's a lot of decisions you have to make there yeah the only thing i will say is that there is in between here which is like the next uh shell model where like the thing you deliver is not dependent on auth you know i know but but if wait so there's two things like websites are not server south like they are so you do need that and then two you do need like even if it's not dependent on auth you need meta tags you need og tags and as soon as you do that you need the back end to take the post id from the url and get the actual post so it can put it into the meta tag yeah um well it's it's not true that um what was your first thing server side the apps do depend on auth that's not entirely true in the sense that if you do the app shell model if you do the next model that's like client side only and you are shipping the code that can be shipped to every user on a cdn then you have basically split out essentially the way i was thinking about it is like with the next model where you only do data management at all from the client um you are basically taking what's the static stuff in your GitHub repo, everything that's in there, and putting it on the CDN. Um, and so from that sense, like as much of that, as much as com- is coming from your GitHub repo and not from your API server can get to your users, then you are giving them an app mm-hmm. in, in, in effect. So um, I just think that's, that's an interesting model. And um, like having just built my first Next app, uh, where I didn't really have to think about any of this. Um, it's just, it was, it's, it's, it's I, I feel like this, these three paragraphs don't quite capture the, the nuance here because, um, again, that the next app I built, um, I didn't have to think about any of this and I got a server side rendering in some form, right? It doesn't render all of the things, um, but it renders enough that it was, that it's the app is there. So we could argue like, yeah, it's, yeah. I don't, I think, I think the next model, for the apps that we work on is super attractive, but mm-hmm. it's not a, it doesn't dismiss what he's saying here. Like you, you, you are, if still you want, need- if you buy the premise that you want a server side render, uh, secure data, yes, everything he's saying is valid or even no, but even any data, like there, there are times where the next model doesn't work. I think what the thing that's most interesting about next for me is that, um, Although there are times when it doesn't work for the types of apps that we work on, it generally always works. Yeah. So, but there we're dismissing a whole class of applications. The meta, t- the meta and title tags are are for sure valid, hundred percent in both cases. But uh, if you can build an app in a way that does not need to server render dynamic data, um, then you sidestep a lot of these issues, and I think that's totally valid because that's like. That's like how iOS apps work. Like you just, you open an app and it it's fine. And it's not a bad user experience to just see the shell and have the thing request the data. In fact, it's sometimes faster because you can see the shell immediately. So that's the whole mm-hmm. argument. I'm just saying, I, yeah, that's I, that's kind of like 
that's the that's me trying to represent the opposing view here as much as possible for this article and i feel like you get to sidestep some of those things right yeah but then if the person comes and says well i i can't because i i'm building github.com and so i have i have urls with usernames in them or i'm building like reddit.com and i have um i have you know just millions and millions of posts that that model doesn't work so they're kind of back to Wait, why doesn't one. that model work with GitHub? Because you 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 have to server render, or you have to pre-generate all the pages, and you can't. why why can't you fetch on the client? You want you want people to post their GitHub repos on Twitter and have them have them work. So like the you need you need server like the rendering. OG tags and the meta tags and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and that, so again. That's the part. That's the part that I think is 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 is. That's true. That's valid. But but the stuff he's talking about with the actual UI being generated at runtime by the server and having interactive buttons, that does not need to be true. Um, if you were building something with the next, if you were building GitHub with next style app architecture. Yeah. How does next, I, I, how does next work on the, um, the interactive buttons? It's, it's would still need to wait for yeah, it would still need to wait for like JavaScript to. Well, it wouldn't kick even in. render that. Yeah, yeah, yes. So yes, if you if you had if you delivered buttons that weren't dependent on the state that were pre-rendered by Next, you could have interact. Uh, di- you could have non-interactive buttons, but you could also code around that and like not show a button until not, you've not render them. Yeah, yep. yeah, exactly. And and I do feel Next nudges you towards yes. thinking about that, yes. and that's. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm not picking on next there. I love. No, no, no I know. I, 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 I think it's good. I think it's good to 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 think through all the things here because I think I do think that if you go full client rendering, basically, um, you you still have server side rendering, but you are not doing it at runtime. It's static, um, static server side rendering. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That that sidesteps some of these issues that he's bringing up. Um, but still totally valid and the meta tags and the title tags there's no question um that that's something that has to be dealt with it's so silly because like meta tags feel like the simplest thing in the world and it's yeah it's, you know it's like the achilles heel of of a lot of server-side rendering stuff yep um i was listening to west boss talk about his new website he went over in an episode of syntax and um he just set up he he had some things that he wanted to pull in at server side because he he wanted at, at build time rather um because he wanted like his whole site to just be generated at build time but he has like a live feed of his like instagram stories and latest tweets on his homepage, um and so he used like a serverless function because it's like a gatsby site and he said it was like really easy to write and it basically solved this problem of like effectively dynamic data because then wait wait he also did he also didn't want to have to rebuild the whole gatsby site like every day um Mm -hmm. so i think his function either updates that data um like periodically or he he has the client refetch um when you initialize i was kind of confused about that but i I have i have a question is the the function is a data is a website an app shell that just requests data from this function or does a function get used at build time i think it gets used at build time and i think it also it, it also there is also a runtime api request that he uses to refresh um the stories and stuff and the tweets once you visit the page but he wanted that's what i was confused about i was like why not just ship the application shell but he wanted 
um, he didn't want those to be empty when you first load the page. So, but I, I think my point was just that like he was saying it was very easy to make a serverless function to do this. And I've heard of people using serverless functions to like solve this, this issue. You know, it's kind of like what we've talked about. Like if you, if you took the next model and just d- delivered a shell that was like, didn't have to deal with auth on the server at runtime, but you still wanted, um, to generate OG tags for previews for bots, you could set up a serverless function to do that. I know that's like super, that's a super hand wavy answer, but you could do it. But it's, I know what you're going to say is like, it's, it's entangled with your entire application yeah, off yeah. logic and everything like that. Um, so you're still passing cookies somehow and, and, and things like that. It's, um, I want to believe, man. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. I mean, yeah, I want to believe too. This is like a path I've been on for years. And I, I, yeah, I do think that we will get there, but, um, this is valid. This, this is valid. I think it's super valid. Yeah. Yeah. All okay. Right, let's keep going. Yeah. <laughs> um, APIs. The dream of APIs is that you have generic, flexible endpoints upon which you can build any web application. That idea breaks down pretty fast. Most interactive web applications start to tri- triangulate on one query per page. API calls being generic or reusable never seem to persist as a value in infrastructure. This is because a large portion of web applications are, at their core, query and transformation interfaces on top of databases. The hardest performance problems they tend to have are query problems and transfer problems. For example, a generically designed REST API that tries not to mix concerns will produce a front-end application that has to make lots of requests to display a page. And then a new age GraphQL application will suffer under the M plus one query problem at a database level until an optimization arrives. And a traditional make a query and put it on a page application will just, well, try to write some good queries. (laughs) None of these solutions, this is a great written essay so far, isn't it, by the way? Yeah, yes. Um, None of these solutions are silver bullets. I've worked with overly strict REST APIs, optimization hungry GraphQL APIs, and handcrafted SQL APIs but no option really lets a web app be careless about its data fetching layer. Web applications can't sit on top of independently designed APIs. To have a chance of performance, the application and its data source need to be designed as one. Do you want to do you want to handle this one? Well, well, so first when he said the the REST API a well-designed one and you're going to have to make a bunch of requests, you know, we've had a lot of good experiences with something like JSON API where it feels like a very good mix of the two worlds and when it works you do have generic endpoints, but you're able to, with enough expressiveness, get full representation of a subgraph of your data into the client. And um, we weren't doing things like making really obscure one-off endpoints. We were like modeling bookshelves and then could query against those bookshelves as we wanted to. So mm-hmm. I feel like there there is um, there's value there. Um, and we feel like, the apps we've worked on, I feel like the apps we've worked on that have worked out well do treat the API as a dumb data layer more and more. Um, that does push a lot of knowledge into the client. And if you have something like an Ember data, um, it can help. But also we've seen like the, the dark sides of that. So like the world has moved towards GraphQL because conceptually it can be easier to just construct a payload for the page you're on as the easiest possible way and then just display the data. Um, but then you have... Um, issues of relational integrity because you're getting partial graphs on one page that are maybe also represented on another page and you have no way to link those two sometimes you do yeah but even if you do you still it's what did he say the m plus one thing like you're you can 
make a query for anything you want, but um, your backend needs to be hand, be able to handle that. Yes, definitely. So, um, yeah, what do you think about this? Uh, well, I, I, I kind of think it's a pipe dream to um, build independent APIs mm-hmm. that any developer can just query. And once we build the API, we'll be able to build the front end because we have uh, the API all built and anyone can just pull any data. Um, and yeah, in, in my experience, it, it's you're building the API for the front end and you should let the requests of the front end drive the API. So um, yeah, I, I think there are tools like, yes, I totally agree that we are building fat client uh, dumb server apps. Yeah. And I think there are tools out there like, you know, anything from JSON API to GraphQL that make this easier. But um, yeah, I, I don't think you can build your backend in isolation. Yeah, yeah. I think there's two things here. One is what you're talking about, which is like a BFF, which is a backend for a front end, which is how we approach things. Because if we were to build a new app, again, we're not talking about like a multi-client app from the beginning. We're just talking about a new web app that's going to be like a React front end, let's say, and an API back end. We're going to start with the front end, let that drive the design of the API, and then build a back end for the front end. But when we do that, we're going to be using the domain modeling that we derive from the needs of the front end. So that's kind of mm-hmm. what you're saying. But I think what he's saying is, I, let's just... I'm saying continue that all the way. Take that to its logical... Yeah, keep going. Like, I think what he's saying is, even if... let's do, Okay, I'll accept that. Let's say that that's where we're at. Like, um, you're still going to basically uh, want... You're still going to have times where you need to like really hand tune these things for specific pages let's say and that's um, the, that's exactly my point so just accept that from the beginning and don't don't think you can write a generic graphql resolver that's just going to work and you can start including relationships and everything's going to come through i'm going to say like if you have a page it's what we did for the bookshelves page like we had to hand tune the back end for that and so like well yeah, we did got we? we got or did yeah, did we yeah yeah we got really really far in the domain modeling we got really yeah. far um and there are like some instances where it breaks down and so like there is a custom controller back there that specifically does a join because uh mm. the request is very very hard to to represent in json api um there's like a lot of polymorphism the mm. you know and i'm this isn't necessarily like a json api problem um there's some confusion with Rails, some confusion mm-hmm, with mm-hmm, the, the mm-hmm. library that we're using, JSON mm-hmm. API resources to request this data. Mm-hmm. But there is hand tuning. But I don't feel, I feel you don't feel okay. like that. You Back feel like it's for okay. front end. Yeah, I, I, I think this, and idea you don't think that of, negates the whole design of like still we should still try to be generic starting out from every resource endpoint we can. Because I think he would say, I think his argument here is like. You're trying to do this thing because it's a dream to have generic APIs and to be able to use a tool like Hasura that just auto generates everything based on your schema. And yeah. at the, because inevitably you have to, um, you have to fine tune things for pages. It's basically like a pipe dream, and it's not even worth starting out with, with that. So no, so there's some nuance here, right? So like if you go five years ago, we were in a spot where it's like you're using your backend to just respond with JSON for the front end. Mm-hmm. And you need some more data mm-hmm. and you don't even have like the con your front end doesn't even have the concept of relationships. You go to right. your back end, your back end team and say, I need this data. And they come up with a plan 
to include that data and they come back to you and say, okay, here's the shape of the new response. And you know, this, this breaks down because first of all, it makes the process extremely slow. There's no rhyme or reason to how data gets added. And so I think tools like JSON API and GraphQL, they, um, they make the communication between the front end team and the back end team just so much easier, right? Like we're going to send a GraphQL request. I need X, Y, and Z. Um, and it's very clear how that, what that's going to look like, how it's going to come over. It's also good too. It, it pushes the concept of like relationships. You, you said, um, referential integrity, mm-hmm. uh, all that stuff onto the front end, which is good. Mm-hmm. The front end needs to know about that. Mm-hmm. But I think it, um, it almost tricks you and thinking like, ah, therefore now everything can be generic and mm-hmm. we can just query. Um, yeah, we can just query the, I mean, a lot of times you can. Like uh, yeah. you, you like you can get far with Hasura and 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 not yes. anything else, um, yeah. and not having to like escape it with like I, they have ways of escaping it and doing the kinds of things we did in our Rails app for specific pages or sc- specific queries. Um, yeah, and I, ex- I, yeah. especially like your if your thing is like JSON API, um, Hasura is a good example here too. But it understands your queries and relationships and how right. those things link together. Like you don't have to worry about M plus one; yeah. it can know to do the join. Yeah, um, but it's still yeah there's still like yeah the other side of it is like i was talking with adam and, and reinick as well jonathan reinick who's working on this course for laravel sql stuff and um yeah there's like a very um kind of relatively simple page where he has he's using the orm from laravel and um you know he he brings it's like already at 100 or 200 milliseconds and he has to like pre-join something or include something or um split one query into two and he brings it down to like four milliseconds and uh you know what i mean you can't do that you can't do that without with generic tools obviously um so that's the argument on the other side which is like you shouldn't even try like you should be using a tool that if you're building a back end for a front end then you should just be writing the queries that you need for the front end as you go um but like the counter there is like Actually, the generic stuff gets you very far. Um, and if you start from scratch with the per page queries, um, like you are going to do a lot of wheel reinventing. So it's actually better to have the generic agreed upon conventions and then have good escape hatches when you need them. Yes. Yeah, that is a great, great, good escape hatches when you need them. Um, yes. Interesting. Data fetching. Speaking of data fetching, it's really important and really bizarre in React land. Years ago, I expect that I'd expected that some good patterns would emerge. Frankly, they didn't. Preaching to the choir, buddy. There are decent patterns in the form of GraphQL, but for a React component that loads data with fetch from an API, the solutions have only gotten weirder. That's great. There's great documentation for everything else, but old-fashioned data loading is relegated to one example of how to mock out fetch for testing and lots of medium posts of varying quality. Don't read this as anti-React. I still think React is pretty great, and for a particular scope of use cases, it's the best tool you can find. And I explicitly want to say that, from what I've seen, most other single-page application tools share most of these problems. There are issues with the pattern, not the specific frameworks used to implement it. React alternatives have some great ideas. They might be better, but they ultimately are really similar. But I'm at the point where I look at where the field is and what the alternative patterns are, taking a second look at unloved, unpopular, uncool things like Django, Rails, and Laravel, and think, what the heck is happening? We're layering (laughs) optimizations upon optimizations in order to get the SPA-like pattern to fit every use case, and I'm not sure that it is, well, worth it. 
and it should be easy to do a good job. Frameworks should lure people into the pit of success, where following the normal rules and normal using normal techniques is the winning approach. I don't think that React in this context really is that pit of success. A naively implemented React SPA isn't stable or efficient, and it doesn't naturally scale to significant complexity. You can add optimizations on top of it that fix these problems, or you can use a framework like Next.js that will include those optimizations by default. That'll help you get pretty far. But then you'll be lured by all of these, all the easy one-click ways to add bloat and complexity. You'll be responsible for keeping some of these complex, finicky optimizations working properly. And for what? Again, there is a swath of use cases which would be hard without React, and which aren't complicated enough to push beyond React's limits. But there are also a lot of problems for which I can't see any concrete benefit to using React. Those are things like blogs, shopping cart websites, mostly CRUD and forms websites. For these things, all of the fancy optimizations are trying to get you closer to the performance you would have gotten if you just hadn't used so much technology. I can, for example, guarantee that this blog is faster than any Gatsby blog and much love to the Gatsby team because there's nothing that a React static site can do that will make it faster than a non-React static site. So that's where I, re- I read that and I, I was like, you lost me, man. I was with you and you just lost me because the, the blog part. Yeah, because if you well, first of all, I, I read that the first time and I started clicking around this guy's website and <laughs> it was it's fine. I mean, it's not it's, of course, it's not slow, but it does not feel like clicking around nextjs.org. It does not at all. Um, so, uh, I mean, I, I mean, you you have to fast fast is not is is ambiguous Um, yeah yeah we need to come up with yeah what are we actually measuring and if it's like time to first interactivity yeah he's gonna kill all these things but if it's time to next page render or some other measure of ux of how it feels something like that it's going to be different but i love great points though yeah i love i mean this is like i think this is the best beachhead for this uh for this argument that it's like you you know there's there's things that are really good um that that like forms server apps are just really really good at that and um yeah it's really hard to build a react site that's gonna react app that's gonna use those things i think um i'm not done with the essay by the way but go ahead okay do you want to go through more parts or? there's like three more paragraphs i want to just I, I, go ahead i want to address ahead. this part like i i don't as developers, we don't really have control over like what we're building and, and we're building like a backend app for forms to edit data. And so you might say like, okay, I should just build a rails app because rails is really good at forms and blah, blah, blah. That's data loading. All that stuff is really easy in rails. Um, the, the problem is, is someone's going to come along and they're going to ask you to build, uh, on this one form, some interactive autocomplete widget thing. And so it's not, yeah, you don't like, we don't get to choose and say, we're not building that because, um, rail, because it's not rails isn't good at that capable. Right. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think this is like, it's a, it's not an either or thing. It's like, you need both. And once you need both, that's what drives people towards react. Right. Obviously, cause this stuff is easy to do in react mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, that's when these problems creep in. That's interesting. I mean, it. I, I definitely, it's definitely true that um, 
developers aren't always in control of what they have to build. It's also true that it's easy for developers to over-engineer things um, for reasons completely within their control. Um, And um, even if you did need interactive bits, this guy or someone taking his side could make an argument about um, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater and discard all of the back-end technology that's stable and well understood. Um, But I think you're... Ultimately, I think where I land on this particular point is like there is a reason that React and JavaScript has become popular because, and it's largely what you're saying, which is product people want to see richer experiences they see it elsewhere and they want it on their products and their sites they see you know intercom and it's like wow that's really powerful as a product person i see an experience like that and think it's a powerful way or a gmail or a trello or a notion and um yeah um it's not to say that a product person couldn't also think of something if they were familiar with the constraints. Like I think about Basecamp a lot because when Ryan Singer talks about this, you know, he is a, a product person, but he's also a developer and he understands the constraints of the web and he also understands the constraints of um, Rails, the technology they use, and he's intentionally uh, curbing his product desires based on that technology because he has a belief about the trade-offs with making a calendar that is like a list because it's going to save them all this time in development side instead of just asking for like the most interactive version of the thing. So, um, and maybe that's the answer. One of the answers is like product people should be more aware of those trade-offs and maybe developers are at fault for always pushing the most interactive version. I can build that with React. It'll take two seconds. But what about the opportunity cost, right? Right. The problem exists on both sides. It's, hey, can can you build me an interactive calendar? And the developer says, yeah, of course. This is what yeah. React's made for. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So I'm not trying to push blame off of developers. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree with you. Like product person that understands this stuff and the constraints are well understood from like way before they hit engineering is, is yeah, that. That that's a good thing regardless if you end up building yes. a react app or not yes. um i think the reality the reality is it's just not it's so far from the truth i i think most people are probably in the situation that we were in you know at ted where we're being asked there's a product team leading driving it and of course you can push back if you're a super assert you can be a super assertive programmer and be like no, I'm sorry, we can't. Here, let me show you what version of that I can build you. And then you can just like put your foot down. But we also can't deny, again, like these little experiences that we, that really stuck with us, which was like the team using our product saying like, oh my gosh, I can click the next page and I don't lose my position and I don't scroll and like I don't have to reload the page. And I'm like, it makes me faster at my job. So, you know, that's really, that's sort of stuff that really has stuck with us and has made us want to make this stuff easier rather than abandoning it. Yeah. Also, too, yeah, we can totally make the argument like, yeah, you should be an assertive programmer and you should push back. I think there's two things like going against that as one is like, um, I don't think programmers really look at their, I don't at least look at my job as being, I should push back on these things unless that's why I've specifically hired. So there have been times where, especially in in the consulting we do where, um, we are hired because we push back. So Mm -hmm. it's way easier to push back. But Mm -hmm. when someone comes to you with, 
okay, we did all these user interviews. Uh, the design team mocked this whole thing up. Um, now we need you to build this. It feels like, should I push back here? Like this is, there's been months of work put into this. Yeah. Um, and the other part is like, this is going to sound bad, but it's like, I actually want to build these things, right? Yeah. I want to, I want to challenge myself. I want to yeah. build these interactive things. And a lot of times, like, you know, especially when you're a developer at a big company, you don't have the whole business picture. Mm -hmm. Um, you don't know that like, oh, actually the business would, would much rather have this thing done tomorrow than have like a complete fully interactive widget that's done in three months. Mm -hmm. Um, and because you don't have that, you get to kind of twist the story to fit your narrative. And it's mm -hmm. like, hey, they want an interactive calendar. I want to challenge myself. I want to build an interactive calendar. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm thinking about all those GraphQL queries that this thing is going to make. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I think. No, that's a good point. I'm kind of putting myself in the position of like CEO if I were to start a company and like I wanted to make something like Notion and I had like this beautiful thing in my mind of like why this little micro interaction was important and the developer I hired was like, um, I can't do that with Rails and I really think we should avoid JavaScript because I read this blog. I'd be like, okay, you're fired, dude. <laughs> <laughs> like, I would be like, get out of here. Like this is not this is not how we're gonna do this. You know what's so funny is is since <laughs> since like we're in charge of a lot of the software right now, I've had like the complete opposite um a reaction where i'm like okay what is the quickest way to yes. to make the user happy here and, no that is um, that is of course a good motivation you always want to be thinking about that but it's also true that like um we spent extra time on the homepage of mirage to make an interactive video thing because that is where yeah. we landed on being important and we still get comments on it and compliments on it and so i think it was a good investment and so you know, did that mean, did that add technical debt or take us a long time because we're working with tools that are over, op, you know, it, whatever it's, it's, there's, it's, yeah, it's a trade-off and there's multiple variables here, you know? Yeah. Well, it's we not all else equal. It's like the, a lot of this is coming from all else equal. You're making a CRUD app of forms. Why are you using React and client rendering? But the situation is usually not all else equal. Yeah. I mean, really the best, I think the best answer here, it's what you said, like the Ryan Singer thing. It's us on the Mirage homepage. Mm -hmm. understanding the trade-off understanding how long it's going to take versus what it gets you mm -hmm. yeah okay let's uh, let's finish this this one off but the cultural tides are strong building a company on django in 2020 seems like the equivalent of driving a pt cruiser and blasting faith hills breathe on a cd while your friends are listening to the weekend in their <laughs> teslas <laughs> that's great uh swimming against this current isn't easy and not in a trendy contrarian way I don't think that everyone's using the SBA pattern for no reason. For large corporations, it allows teams to work independently. The front-end engineers can consume the APIs from teams that probably work in a different language and can only communicate through hierarchy. For heavily interactive applications, it has real benefits in modularity, performance, and structure, and it's beneficial for companies to shift computing requirements from their servers to their customers' browsers, a real win for reducing their spend on infrastructure. But I think there are a lot of problems that are better solved some other way. There's no category winner like React as an alternative. Ironically, backends are churning through technology even faster than frontends, which have been loyal to one programming language for decades. There are some huh. age-old technologies. That's great. No, that's great. Yeah. I really like that. Yes. There are some age-old technologies like Rails, Django, and Laravel, and there are a few half-hearted attempts to do templating and serve web pages from Go, Node, and other new languages. If you go this way, you're beset by the cognitive dissonance of following in the footsteps of enormous projects. 
Wikipedia rendering web pages in PHP, Craigslist rendering, rendering web pages in Perl, but being far outside the norms of modern web development. If Wikipedia were started today, it'd be React. Maybe. What if everyone's wrong? We've been wrong before. That's the end. So yeah, that's uh, that's second guessing the modern web. Um, SPA fatigue is the name of the blog post. Is the name of the <laughs> URL. Um, pretty interesting. And uh, I mean, maybe you know, I just comment on like the contrarian pushback. I mean, maybe it, it will be cool to push back on these. There'll be a cool contrarian view against SPAs. Right. Right. So I want to pull up Dan's response um, from Dan Abramov. So here, I want to read this thread from Dan. So he um, he's, he referenced the post and he says, this hits the nail on the head and is 100% matching our long-term thinking. Client-side only is not sustainable. We need to move more stuff to the server, but without sacrificing seamless composition of interactive pieces. I know everyone is frustrated with the slow rollout of suspense for data fetching, but the reason is precisely that we realized it's unsustainable to put all this stuff on the client as a default solution. It just doesn't make sense. The server should be a first-class citizen. Today, client-centered and server-centered are two different ends of the spectrum. You have to design your app in different ways. But what if you didn't have to choose between the Rails-like model and the client-react model? The future is hybrid. A disappearing framework is certainly cool and worth striving for, but it doesn't help much when the framework is 5% of your code. Say disappearing app and I'm listening. Imagine. Can you, a, can you explain what, what is a disappearing framework or disappearing app? Let's keep going. Imagine a CRUD React app with routes, but with no client-side router. Imagine the JS code for most of your components is never shipped to the client, but you can sprinkle some interactivity where you want to. Imagine there was no backend because it would be your components. I don't know if it makes sense to write about this vision somewhere. Last time we shared our vision, there was a lot of frustration that's taking much time to ship. So we're more quiet about it now until we have something you can try. So I think he means um, the future is hybrid. A disappearing framework is certainly cool and worth striving for, but it doesn't help much when the front end is 5% of your code. Say disappearing app and I'm listening. I think he's saying like... Um, I, th I think the second part maybe add some clarity there like you you're you write your routes in react but you don't actually ship them to the client so therefore the app disappears was that mm, i guess that is what he's saying imagine there is no back end because it would be your components i feel like i understood this when i first read it client-centered and server-centered are two different ends of the spectrum today you have to design your app in different ways. But what if you didn't have to choose between the Rails-like model and the client-react model? The future is hybrid. Yeah, I mean, just just to give an example here, if you have a, f a form and you're handling that form submission on the client, um, it looks very different than if you're handling that form submission on the server, right? Mm -hmm. Like the it's a form submission, but the way you write the code is just very different. So maybe there's, he's saying like, one of those disappears and you can write it in one area and the other area that was handling it knows how to talk to the other end of the spectrum. Right. I, yeah. I guess he's just saying like the Svelte style thing where like, um, I think he's just saying the app disappears, right? Because, um, 
you don't have this notion of a fat client that you have to load and then now you're running an app. It's like it, the app disappears because like you're authoring React components, routes, let's say, but there's a tight integration between the client and the server. And so the client can make a request and like your app just like handles it in a combination of server and client side code, but it disappears because it's not like your app that has to get shipped to the client and just execute on the client. So, um, and that's definitely different from like an, a native app, which is like an app and it doesn't disappear. It's like on your phone for sure. Yeah. Um, so there's an interest, there is a lot of, there's something interesting here where like I make a request and then like I get something back and what is it? Am I getting back a snapshot of your app? Am I getting back an entire app? Am I getting a slice? Um, if you had tight integration there, you could be really intelligent about that. And people already do things like this today, but um, I kind of think that's the angle that he's taking. That's pretty interesting. So that was Dan's take. Um, it was interesting to hear him say like they're really focused on um, moving more stuff to the server because like personally to me, like like there were a lot of problems that I saw get solved once you really go all in on like client rendering because yeah, it's the dumb API, it's the client side, optimistic UI stuff. That stuff I really like and it makes you it nudges you to push more and more smarts into your client, right? Um, you can have instant feedback on the UI. Like to that guy's point, Tom's point in the blog post, like you actually can be faster because you can like prefetch the next page bundle on hover. And that's like awesome. Um, and that does make your app feel faster. And all of that is due to like pushing more smarts into the client. So I was kind of interested to see this um, where he's like client only. Client side only is not sustainable. We need to move more stuff to the server. Um I mean, do you agree with that? Like, uh, would you say the same thing about your native apps on your iPhone? The the native app on the iPhone is, is it's a different environment, and so I think it's easy. It's we can get away with um, fat client dump server. Uh, I think the problem with the web app is that we are saying that this works just like the old environment did, but it's fat client dump server, and it turns out it. For that blog post, it turns out for all those reasons, it doesn't work like the old environment. And that um, we usually don't understand that until way, way late into building these apps and it creates problems, uh, creates a lot of problems. So like there's problems we can't just ignore because we're choosing to make a fat client. Like there are problems. Um, there's just like expectation. Like I, it's yeah. a website. I expect it to work in Google. Um, yeah. Yeah. I expect yeah. it to work on Twitter. Why doesn't it work on Twitter like all the other websites? Like you could be a explain, link to it. You, yeah. You know. I can explain to you why it doesn't work, but um to press the back button. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's good. That's good. Um Okay, so Rich's point here, and I have a dentist appointment, but I still have like uh 10 20 minutes, so I think we can I think we can read through um Rich's point. Um, he said a few days ago, Tom wrote an excellent piece called second guessing the modern web. I wanted to offer a counterpoint to the conclusion he reaches at least as far as I and others understood it. I expect I'll annoy everyone with this post. The anti JavaScript crusaders justly aghast at how much of the stuff we slather on the modern websites, the people arguing the web is a broken platform for interactive applications anyway, and we should start over react users the old guard with their artisanal JS and hand-authored HTML, 
and Tom McWright, someone I've admired from afar since I first became aware of his work on that box many, many years ago. But I guess that's the price of having opinions. Can you can you give me a few minutes? I need to go uh, put a bag of popcorn in the microwave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tom recently posted Second Guessing the Modern Web, and it took the front-end world by storm. You should read it, or at least the very... At least, at the very least, the Cliff's notes. His, he links to his thread because he kind of did a TLDR. There's a lot of stuff I agree with to varying degrees. There's a sweet spot, quote, there's a sweet spot of React in moderately interactive interfaces, but there's a lot on either side of that sweet spot, unquote. It's absolutely the case that running React in the client for a largely static site is overkill. It's also true that you have to avoid React if your app is very heavily interactive. It's widely understood that if you want 60 FPS animation, you'll likely have to bypass the React update cycle and do things in a more imperative fashion. Indeed, this is what libraries like React Spring do. But while all this is true of React, it's much less true of component frameworks in general. Quote, user sessions are surprisingly long. Someone might have your website open in a tab for weeks at a time. I've seen it happen. So if they open the about page, keep the tab open for a week, then request the home page. Then the home page that they request is dictated by the index bundle that they downloaded last week. Unquote. It's an excellent point that isn't really being addressed, though, as Tom acknowledges, it's really just exacerbating a problem that was always there. I think there are solutions to it. We can iterate on the index bundle approach. We could include the site version in a cookie and use that to show actionable feedback if there's a mismatch, but we do need to spend time on it. Quote, it's your startup's homepage and it has a sign up button, but until the JavaScript loads, that button doesn't do anything. So you need to compensate, unquote. This is indeed very annoying, though it's easy enough to do this sort of thing. We just need to care enough. And then he shows a button with disabled is equal to is browser, uh, is browser, question mark, sign up, colon, loading, basically. So kind of what we were talking about. You can handle it. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure what this has to do with React-style frameworks. This issue exists whatever form your front-end takes unless you make it work without JS, which you should. So that was a little... I still don't understand where this comes from, but that's from Rich saying that. Quote, your formerly lightweight application server is now doing quite a bit of labor running React and making API requests in order to do this pre-rendering. Unquote. Again, this is true, but more React-specific than anything. React's approach to server-side rendering, constructing a component tree, then serializing it, involves overhead that isn't shared by frameworks that, for example, compile your components, and then he has a link to spell, he says hi in parentheses, to functions that just concatenate strings for SSR, which is faster by a dramatic amount. And those API requests were going to have to get made anyway, so it makes sense to do them as early as possible, especially if your app server and API server are close to each other, or even the same thing. Quote, the dream of APIs is that you have generic, flexible endpoints upon which you can build any web application. That idea breaks down pretty fast, unquote. Amen. Just go and read the whole API section several times. Minor quibbles aside, Tom identifies some real problems with the state of art, state of the art in web development, but I think the article reaches a dangerous conclusion. Let's start by dissecting this statement. Quote, I can, for example, guarantee that this blog is faster than any Gatsby blog, much love to the Gatsby team, because there's nothing that a React static site can do that will make it faster than a non-React static site, unquote. With all due respect to those involved, I don't think Gatsby is a particularly relevant benchmark. The Gatsby new MySite starter app executes 266 kilobytes of minified JavaScript for completely static page in production mode. For GatsbyJS.org, it's 808 kilobytes. Honestly, these are not impressive numbers. So he shows a lighthouse score for Gatsby's homepage. It's 54. 
timed interactive is 10.8 seconds. Leaving that aside, I disagree with the premise. When I tap on a link on Tom's JS free website, the browser first waits to confirm that it was a tap and not a brush or a swipe, then makes a request, and then we have to wait for the response. With the framework authored site with client-side routing, we can start to do more interesting things. We can make informed guesses based on analytics about which things the user is likely to interact with and preload the logic and data for them. We can kick off requests as soon as the user first touches or hovers a link instead of waiting for confirmation of a tap. Worst case scenario, we've loaded some stuff that will be useful later if they do tap on it. We can provide better visual, visual feedback that loading is taking place and a transition is about to occur. And we don't need to load the entire contents of the page. Often we can make do with a small bit of JSON because we already have the JavaScript for the page. This stuff gets fiendishly difficult to do by hand. Beyond that, vanilla static sites are not an ambitious enough goal. Take transitions, for example. Web developers are currently trapped in a mindset of discrete pages with jarring transitions. Click a link, see the entire page get replaced, whether through client-side routing or page reload, while native app developers are thinking on another level. Then he embeds this tweet from Ryan Florence, um, where he, you might remember this from last year, where he kind of showed off like some native animations in like the books app on iOS. Mm -hmm. And Ryan was saying that this is what I've had in mind for the web with React Router, um, you know, for a long time, and we still kind of don't see them. So back to Rich. It will take more than a technological advancement to get the web there. It will take a cultural shift as well but we certainly can't get there if we abandon our current trajectory, which is exactly what Tom seems to be suggesting. I'm not aware of any other platform where you're expected to write the logic for your initial render using a different set of technologies than the logic for subsequent interactions. The very idea sounds daft, but on the web, with its unique history, that was the norm for many years. We generate some HTML with PHP or Rails or whatever, then sprinkle some jQuery on it. With the advent of Node, that changed. The fact that we can do server-side rendering and communicate with databases and what have you using a language native to the web is a wonderful development. There are problems with this model. Tom identifies some of them. Another major issue he doesn't discuss is that the server-rendered SPA model typically hydrates the entire initial page in a way that requires you to duplicate a ton of data, once in the HTML, once in the JSON blob that's passed to the client version of the app to produce the exact same result and can block the main thread during the period the user is starting to interact with the app. But we can fix those problems. Next is doing amazing innovation around, for example, mixing static and dynamic pages within a single app, so you get the benefits of the purely static model without ending up finding yourself constrained by it. Marco does intelligent component-level hydration, something I expect other frameworks to adopt. Sapper, the companion framework to Svelte, has a stated goal of eventually not sending any JS other than the tiny router itself for pages that don't require it. The future I want, the future I see, is one with tooling that's accessible to the greatest number of people, including designers, that can intelligently move work between server and client as appropriate, that lets us build experiences that compete with native on UX, parentheses, yes, even for blogs, and we're upgrading part of a site to interactive or from static to dynamic doesn't involve communication across disparate teams using different technologies. We can only get there by committing to the paradigm Tom critiques, the JavaScript dish component framework server rendered SPA. Better names welcome. The modern web has its flaws and we should talk about them, but let's not give up on it. That's it. Cool. 
Um, I love it. I mean, I'm yeah, super me excited too. about it. <laughs> I, I re- you know, I really, so there's something interesting. He talks about like the future, right? And, and all those things. And yeah, that, that, that resonates with me. I want that. I, I want to hear what it, like what that actually would look like. Um, yeah. What would that, like read that last paragraph again? Like what, what would those things actually like? I want to like see some, um, like a, a blog that's actually better or something more like right now it's at a high level. Yeah. Uh, I want to see what it looks like. Like how would, what would the implementation actually look like? I don't need like actual function and code. I just want to hear yeah. more about like how the system would work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a theoretical take in, in some sense. Now in another, I will say again, dude, I wrote that next site. It was my first time using it. And I was just at every single step I wrote it. I plugged it into my back end. I did CRUD on it. I didn't do authentication. Um, but I deployed it and at every step in the way I was blown away by the tooling, man. The tooling it's so is incredible. It's so fast. It's so friendly. Um, honestly, the tooling is just, just even if you're going to export at the end, like next, whatever export or whatever it is to get a dynamic, uh, a static, completely static site that doesn't, and you disable, disable JavaScript completely. Like the tooling is just incredible. So, um, yeah, it feels like a development environment. And and I feel like that is just so enabling and so powerful. And um, yeah, that's kind of my that's kind of my contribution here on this article is just to say that like to me that's so enabling and empowering that like it has to be the future. Like that is the future that's going to win. The tools that do that are going to win. And um, I don't think that there's a reason they can't close the gap between what is exported and the kind of ux that you end up with from something that's like a jekyll or whatever um they can close that gap while continuing to iterate and improve on the ux the the developer experience um and making tools that are more empowering so um and also because you're working in like he said the native language of the web you're working in the ui language of the web that is basically unlimited in terms of your creativity and what you can do with it you can build figma that runs in the browser so um i just think that's where i'm placing my bets because like if you combine tools like next that are getting better at from dx if you can close the gap um with like server rendering which you can because we have node and, and those things are getting better and also you're unlimited in terms of what you can build you can build a figma you can build a notion um because you're not constrained like if you're building a rails app that takes a hard stance on limited use of javascript you're fundamentally constraining your product and so to me it's just in the long of course it can make sense to use those technologies today but in the long term the, the other one has to win right yeah i'm totally agree just that that third point that you're unconstrained yeah and i think that's so so important yeah so we got to make a blog that is just so killer <laughs> it does make it is i really i was after I read this, I was thinking like, what would an Apple documentation site look like? Like, what does it look like for Apple to like make a documentation reference guide? Cause you know, we work on like mirage.js.com. It's like the biggest react site that, um, we personally work on. That's our, one of our properties. 
And um, well, there's a lot of interactive stuff on there already. And also like the REPL is going to be even more, but like you can imagine so much more, right? With like inline examples and stuff like that. But also just thinking about just the page navigation and the transitions, like what would it look like if that was like an app like experience or if Apple built a native app for referencing things, how different would it feel from like a website, which is like full page jarring, like he said, full page jarring transitions that you lose context. You never you feel like you lose context when you're navigating around your iPhone. You always know where you are because of the use of animations and stuff like that. You know, what's so funny about that question. I, I can't even answer it. I'm yeah. so used to looking at web documentation yeah. where every link is a, a throw the old thing away, render the new yeah. thing. And, and yeah. even things that are SPAs, it's, it's, yeah, yeah I have no idea. I would love to see what the Apple version of that is. There's got to be like some reference. There's got to be some reference that I can get on my iPad that is a native app. Yeah, and so that is close that. to like a text reference or document. I mean, even in like the iOS Safari app, you know, they even use some gestures where you want to see all your tabs and you just, it zooms out a little bit and you can see all of them. Mm. Or I like how you can hold up on an app and you can see your other apps. Sometimes I reference information like that. It's just nice. So it's kind of cool to think, you know, maybe it's like your history is like available very easily visually as part of the doc site. And so you can just jump around and you have like a little stack there of like the pages you've, I mean, that'd be useful, you know? Yeah. Be, yeah. Cause most documentation isn't linear. Right. And so if you your UI could actually surface that. Right. I mean, there's a lot of cool ideas there, but um, yeah. So uh, anyways, I guess we should wrap it up here. I got to get to the dentist, but I thought that was a really interesting exchange uh, I think Rich did a really good job capturing like what I what motivates me to work on like JavaScript UIs on the web and the kinds of web experiences I'm interested in building. Um, of course, Tom's blog post was also excellent and absolutely captured real world pain points that teams should consider and people should consider when they're thinking about what technology to use to build a site. And it saddens me that it has been so many years and it feels like a lot of the engineering resources in front end JS have gone to things like optimizing micro optimizations in my my mind, which are like, how can we repaint a thousand rows really quickly? Whereas everyone would have been helped much more in my opinion, like the total utility would have been higher for front end web development community. If, um, we had like better solutions for yeah refreshing an app or doing data fetching and making APIs quickly that are good for consumption by SPAs, um, all that stuff, you know? Yeah. So interesting, right? Cause like maybe the, the thousand rows thing is just such a, such a showstopper. I know we, ha- we unfortunately <laughs> have to solve that, but, but we unfortunately have to solve that before we can do the data fetching and just like, yeah, I, in like 2012, I was like, you know, we're just going to wait three to four years. And, and we're going to have rails. R- yeah, and we're going to have rails. And, and yeah. you know, way, way wrong on that bet. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I still think we will get to that future. But, it, I mean, it could be, we could be dealing with this for 10, 15 years. <laughs> Seriously, we could. I mean, things are definitely better now than they were in 2012. I also think it's going to look different than we thought it was going to look like it might oh, look like, absolutely. um, yeah, next and Mirage local development. And then I get a schema that I plug into Hasura and, and I deploy an app and like, that's, that's all I need. And, yeah. um, you know, that, that's basically what I did and it was really cool. And, um, it's just, it still feels a little weird using Hasura because it's like, it's not this, 
it is an open source thing, but it's not, it's not extract. It's like a separate service. It's like, I want something that's extracted from like a real company that built something. And you know what I'm saying is like, it's like supported by the community widely and stuff like that. Um, but, but it really is just a light interface layer to a database. So maybe it's not as big of a dependency as I'm making it out to be. But anyways, the point is we don't not have anything like rails in the front end JavaScript space. We thought we would by now. And, um, that makes a lot of this stuff still hard. Yeah. Also, too, yeah, going back to uh, we have no idea what it's going to look like. If you told me yeah. I would be writing statically generated websites, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would just be so confused. <laughs> I would yeah. have so many questions. <laughs> and it turns out it's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. I know, man, the thousand, it's so funny, the thousand roses bloom thing is just like, on the one hand, it's like React has clearly done a good job by being low level and serving many needs. On the other hand, it's like, yeah, there's still a gap. Yeah. Pretty interesting, man. Cool. Well, if you're still around with us after an hour and 22 minutes of uh, jibber jabber, we appreciate you. Let us know what you think. If you have any questions, um, if you like the show, share it with your friends, leave us a review. It's a great way to help other people find out about the show. Let us know if anyone's listening other than us. Although we probably still do this if no one was listening, you know. <laughs> um, we appreciate you listening. Uh, we hope you all are doing great, staying safe, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.